specifically was what made my father so dangerous to the regime. And it was the fact that he was not trying to uh, to transform the uh, powerful. He was trying to transform the powerless. He was trying to, he was empowering is a word that now everybody uses, but he was actually trying to empower in the people in the sense, in the, in the first and most primary uh, step, which is your personal freedom. I'm always all right. So you're listening. You're welcome, welcome everybody to Pancom Podcast. Welcome to the latest episode of Pancom oh. Podcast. Viste how organized this is. Woo. Welcome to Pancom Podcast. Uh, we are here with alleged chef and chili cook-off champion Michael Beltran. Just one time. Just one chili cook-off champion chasing his second championship. <laughs> I am Nick Jimenez, the uh, or rather the producer formerly known as Nick Jimenez. We have been suddenly joined by. Uh, Emma, who is bringing drinks and probably still evading the Oreos that I offered her earlier because they're filled with meat instead of cream filling. Uh, and most importantly, we are joined by... Oh, there we go. There, there we go. go. Those are all yours. Me, please. Away from me. Thank you. Yeah, we are joined by uh, Rosa Maria Paya. Uh, we're going to get into who she is. I know that for a lot of our audience, uh, that is not a name that you necessarily know, but I think uh, that we can say with confidence it's a name you should know and that you will be glad by the time this is through that you know. Uh, she is the daughter of Oswaldo Paya, of the late Oswaldo Paya, um, who started the uh, Movimiento Cristiano Liberación, and also, uh, as, as part of his activism, the Varela Project. Uh, I, I pulled up the, your Wikipedia page because... Um, I don't, it wasn't I, I, made by me. No, I know. And that's part of why I brought it up. Because I think that this is a perfect illustration of... You know, I think that on this podcast... And I'm sorry, I know. I, I swear when I'm done hijacking your no, podcast... No, no, no. I like... This is good. I think I, this is good. We, we talk a lot about uh, the idea that... The problem in Cuba is not in the past. It's not something that people uh, of some old generation in Miami are just still complaining about for reasons that are beyond anyone's understanding. It's now. And your Wikipedia page is part of the reason, is, is a good illustration of this. So the last, the, the last, or the second sentence of the introductory paragraph to your Wikipedia page. The daughter of activist Oswaldo Paya head of the Christian Liberation Movement, she took up much of his activist work after he died by involuntary yeah. manslaughter of Angel Carromero on the 22nd of July, 2012. So, uh, of course, we're going to ask you about some of this, but part of why this was so important to me was because, uh, as I've noted before on the podcast, I've been to Cuba four times, and the fourth time I was turned around and never allowed to go back. The only person who, the only two people actually, who I ever, while I was in Cuba, actually told my real name to, 
and kept in touch with were Roger Carrullo and Harold Severo. And one of them was in the car with your father. Angel Carromero, once he was in Spain, told the Washington Post that the Cuban government had drugged him and forced the testimony that led to this conclusion that this was involuntary manslaughter. They were run off the road. So, you have carried on your father's legacy with your activism, and that is where I will back out. No, let me tell you, that is the best intro Nick has ever done. And uh, And the inspiration was Wikipedia. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Wikipedia is an interesting place, but it is what it is. Thank you for coming on the show. No, thank you so much. Thank you so much for inviting me, uh, Michael, Nicolás. It's my, it's my pleasure to be here. Uh, I have care about your, your podcast, about your, uh, your interest in communicating what the Cuban community is and what the Cuban community feels and have to offer and also needs to uh, the others to understand about. So thank you so much for doing that. And thanks also for, uh, for beginning with a mention to my father and to, I understand, our dear friend, Harold yeah. uh, Cepero. So, um, we've talked a lot on this podcast about, you know, what it is to be um, Cuban here. I mean, I was born here uh, from, you know, my family is Cuban. We're undoubtedly very still connected to our culture and so on and so forth but we don't talk a lot about um kind of the what's happening in cuba now so and i think talking a little bit about your story and uh kind of the journey that you've been through kind of says that story a little bit right um what the state of cuba is today right i think that in a way the story of almost any Cubans reflect that. Uh, mine in particular also reflects the perversity of that regime against those who dare to live in, in truth, to live according to their feeling, according to their thinking, according to their will. That's yeah. very, very dangerous in, in, in our country. Mm. And I probably also want to mention that uh, your family is Cuban, so but you are also Cuban. Oh yeah, and that's part of what I uh, I I have discovered as very unfair in the um, in the understanding of the Cuban American community. I have now many friends that are as Cubans as I am. That probably knows more on tradition, history, and literature about my country than myself that have never been in Cuba and I have been told no you have no right to talk about Cuba because you have never been there (laughs) and so I I I was for me it's important to mention that to you yeah just for you to know that you as Cuban as I am with the same power (laughs) and uh, and the say the same right to talk about our country to defend uh, to defend the cows that whatever cows they are defending uh, and to show the world what Cubans are. This episode of Pancom Podcast is brought to you by Estrella Dam. 
Every fall, Estrella Dam Chef's Choice program has been a welcome annual program highlighting great South Florida restaurants, their innovative cuisines, and the excellence of Barcelona's cherished beer. October 15th through November 15th, 2020, the program returns. Rechristened as Estrella Dam's culinary journey and featuring fabulous, fabulous restaurants in Dade and Broward County. During the month of October, adventurous foodies will be able to enjoy uniquely delicious and specially priced offerings from participating restaurants. From exclusive dishes to tasting menus, all paired with Estrella Dam. Classically, their program has been centered around a tasting menu paired with Estrella Dam. But this is a year unlike any other, so they wanted to give chefs and operators the freedom to create their own offering at their own price. Some are presenting a special dish, others a multi-course menu. Brewed in Barcelona with Mediterranean ingredients since 1876, Estrella Dam boasts a versatile and approachable flavor profile, making it an attractive pairing to cuisines from around the world, as evidenced by the eclectic lineup of participating restaurants. For more information on Estrella Dam culinary journey, including a full list of the more than 40 participating restaurants and menus, please visit www.estrelladamjourney.com. Now, Mike, what will this look like here at Ariette? So here at Ariette, we're going to be doing we're going to be doing a wonderful three course menu that's going to be kind of our signature dishes on it. Which one will be the short rib, the other will be our flan, and the first course will kind of be rotating with other things that we find to fit the Estrelladam profile. We wanted to be able to offer the beer with some of our signature dishes because. You know, we want to offer Estrella them 12 months out of the year, not just right now for a special menu. So we wanted to pair it with something that will be on our menu forever. Again, you can get to all the information about this program at www.estrelladamjourney. That's E-S-T-R-E-L-L-A-D-A-M-M journey. Estrella, like star in Spanish, dam, D-A-M-M, journey.com. I think the um, something that we mentioned here also several times is like we feel like we're almost the children of a forgotten culture, right? Because 50 years ago, um, a lot of what made us special was suppressed. Mm-hmm. And then when our families came here, um, we had to pivot and assimilate to what the American way of life was. And understandably so, because, you know, my grandparents came here and they were trying to create um, a livelihood for their kids and what would end up being uh, their grandkids, me and my cousins and uh, my sister. And along the way, some people kind of forgot about how special our culture and who we are really is. And I think um, as I got older... And I left Miami. I left Miami for four years. I felt even more connected to my roots when I left than when I was here. Because when I was here, there's, I mean, it's like 80% Cuban here, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like you feel like you're with your people. And then when you leave, you're missing an entire part of your being. You had your experience of exile when you you leave Miami. Well, when I lived in Virginia, it was a very different thing. And... um, you know, I, I missed so many things about just who we are. And I think what makes us special 
in my journey of food, um, I found like one of my missions in life was to honor our culture and my grandparents and my parents through our food, through a new conversation of food and a new conversation of what Cuban American food is and Cuban food is. So I appreciate you saying that because, um, I've had that conversation with several people. It's like, well, you were born in America, so you're an American. It's like, well, yeah, I'm, I'm American, but I'm, I'm, I am, (laughs) I am Cuban. Mm -hmm. There is no doubt that the inside of me, there is a fire that is not just from this country. It's from somewhere else. And you know, it's, um, it's an interesting thing. And, And it's like in your mind, uh, trying to figure that out as you grow older and as you become, uh, an adult and how you want to say your story and you want to leave your legacy one day, it's, it's a lot. So tell me about your journey a little bit. Tell me about from, uh, from the beginning. <laughs> it's a lot. I know. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a lot. And probably there are a lot of uh, non so interesting information there. Um, I suppose that the, the real answer uh, begins with, with the history of my father, with the history of my family, which, uh, which was and is a, a regular Cuban family. Yeah. And living inside the island with uh, the half or, or more of his members living outside the island, Having that uh, very difficult experience of uh, separation, of division, of um, incommunication for a lot of time also. But uh, uh, my, fa- my family was different from the majority of the Cuban families in, in, the, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s in the sense that and they were never part of the system. They were never part of the, of what the, probably of what the American people knows by the revolution mm. or the, or the Cuban Communist Party. And which, and that's a very peculiar characteristic. It's not, it's not something that a lot of families did uh, in Cuba, especially not in the, in the last half of the, of the, Communism in the island. At the beginning, of course, many, many, many families were uh, were against, immediately against what was taking place. Many of them were forced to exile. Others were lately also forced to exile. Yeah. And uh, in the late 80s and in the 90s, um, the situation was more or less was more or less uh, controlled by uh, by the regime, but the the seek for freedom the the seek for finding your own way in life yeah. is something is something which is merely human human nature exactly I mean the, not even forty years of communism could uh, take that out of the human nature take right. that out of the 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 Cuban people. So that many families in Cuba in that moment and also now still rebel 
against that uh, oppressive power. My family was one of them. My my experience is different for, for the to the experience of many of my I don't know my friends in the in the high school or in the university, for instance. In some ways, I had it harder because I saw the repudiation acts. I don't know if that's something that the American people understand. Un acto de repudio is something similar to a Nazi pogrom in which the, the um, a paramilitars of the, of the Cuban Communist Party or trained by the Cuban Communist Party go to your house and start to scream and attack and sometimes even assault their house and the people that is inside the house. That happened to my family <laughs> during wow. my childhood. And How old were you? I was, seven, I, I was seven years old. I was not in the house in that moment. Oh, so wow. I, I didn't actually leave it. I just, I just remember seeing the, uh, the, the signs that they painted in the in the in the front of the of my house which is was a very humble house i remember those signs i think that there are pictures in internet with uh, so they paint on your house yes they paint on the on the door and on the on the front door and in the on the front wall of the house also they paint the word uh, gusano worn mm. and they paint also things like uh, Viva Fidel, that kind of sense, with black painting. And that happened to, to my family. But at the same time, I had an experience of freedom that my friends in high school and in the university didn't. Even when everybody, or at least the most part of them, think like us and saw like us in that moment also, um, I had the freedom of saying whatever I whatever I decided to. I had the freedom of express myself in any way. And my father and my mother, uh, the answer of them to to our freedom of expression was, "You just say whatever you think, and then we'll figure it out." Yeah. But the answer that my friends in high school received from their parents were, "Hey." You keep your mouth shut. You keep silence. Everything what that, that you are hearing or thinking inside your house have to be a secret. And they force them to, to live kind of a double life out of fear. Wow. That was the experience of my friends. In that sense, I, I, I was privileged to to growing up to grow up in a in the middle of a jail as a as a free person that's something that i really appreciate from my family that's something that i i i i have a lot of gratitude for my parents and and my whole family for keeping that for us what part of cuba is your family from uh from havana well my 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 grandpas from the part of my mother are from Pinal del Rio. Uh, my family, yeah. Uh, probably that's why they're tobacco. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but they, they, my, my grandpas got married in Havana and they live in Havana the most part of their life. Yeah. 
my whole family, well, the family that I know is from Pinat del Rio and um, very proud Cubans. They've been here for a long time and they miss their country dearly, but very proud. So tell me that um, it's interesting that you mentioned your parents gave you the freedom of to be who you were, to think and say the things that you wanted to say. How has that impacted you in your adult life? I'm sure that's had an enormous amount of impact long term, yeah? Yes. <laughs> well, I mean, the first impacts were during those years, of course, that uh, teachers didn't react that well to our <laughs> freedom of expression. Uh, uh, we, we got into some troubles in, in high school and in the university. I had, I had teachers that dared to threaten us with expelling me from the university for not signing uh, a commitment to, do, to, to go who, wherever the revolution sends me, for instance. All my friends signed that even when they were not ready to do it, and they were telling, oh, just sign. We're not going to do it, but we just, we are going to sign. Um, because that's the kind of behavior of that communists encourage. Control. Yes, they, they it's, it's a culture of fear. It's, it's a culture in which um, after a while, everybody understands that, and, um, the regime is not the is is not what what they sell. Everybody understand that their lives are now more miserable because of the regime. Everybody right. understand that they are le they are less free, that they are poor, that they have more problems to getting out of their own and specific situations because they don't have the freedom to do it. Everybody understands that in a, after a while, but also everybody understands that to express that is going to get you into trouble. So people live, live in fear, and my father, my father used to say that the culture of fear is a culture of simulation. Oh, yeah. And that's, that's dramatic. I mean, that's a tragedy for our people to have been living the most part of your life in a lie, pretending something that you are not, pretending to believe in something that you do not believe in, that's, that breaks you. And that's what communism does to, the, to societies. It's interesting you mentioned that uh, when you were in university, and they made you sign these papers of like just saying that you were going to go wherever the regime would send you. Were there ever any teachers that were opposed in opposition to that idea or were they all in line with that idea? Which is saying like, were there any teachers that were... Solidarious? Yeah. <laughs> uh, they were teachers that were not... Um, that were not... They refuse to repress, and that's brave enough for Havana University. They were some of those. Um, they were others that were part of the repression apparatus. Uh, it is 
it is a machinery that uses everybody, and at the same time, kind of um, embarrass everybody because they need also you to live with shame. They need you to live to live as an accomplices of of the of the dirty things that they force you to do. They need you to feel responsible for what's happening. Yes. It's major manipulation. Yes, and it's also uh, it's also part of what we I think we as, as as a people we have to assume to understand to accept and to change right. <laughs> and to overcome, but also acknowledging our part of responsibility in what is taking place. Yeah, I mean the the change would start with the people. Yes. I mean, there's more people than there are the others. Yes, and that was what that that's actually very very good point because that was my that was the point of my father. That was a that specifically was what made my father so dangerous to the regime. And it was the fact that he was not trying to uh, to transform the uh, powerful. He was trying to transform the powerless. He was trying to... He was empowering is a word that now everybody uses, but he was actually trying to empower in the people in the sense, in the, in the first and most primary uh, step, which is your personal freedom your personal liberation, that was how actually he called it. I mean, the the first change has to take place inside the, inside the person. person. Yeah. And his project that was, um, but that was um, a hole that he found in the constitution, even in the communist constitution, there was an article that allowed the... Uh, the Cuban citizens to have initiative of law. So to actually, that, that translates to the Cuban people has an opportunity to write a bill. A citizen could write a bill, but it's not a bill until more than 10,000 uh, other Cuban citizens sign it also. In the moment that you gather 10,000 signatures for your project of law, it immediately become a bill, and uh, the assembly of the of the communist regime has to discuss it. Wow! They, of course, the uh, Fidel and Raúl Castro never saw that anyone who is, were going to there to collect the signatures to change the system. Well, my father and a group of very uh, crazy and brave people did it. They they collect not ten thousand. They collect tens of thousands of signatures to present a project of law that had five points. It and was to change the law to guarantee freedom of expression, freedom of association, the liberation of the political prisoners that have been have been tens of thousands during these sixty years. Um, the possibility to have private enterprises and a new electoral law that allows uh, free, fair, and multi-party elections. 
that was that is the Varela project, and it was not just the proposal of the law. It ended with a referendum. It was actually a proposal for a referendum, not for the General Assembly of the dictatorship to approve it, but for the General Assembly to ask the Cuban people if they want it. Wow. Which is actually what have never happened in Cuba because people that listen to us could have this, um, well, this uh, romantic idea that the Cuban people is somehow um, happy in the way that they live or that or have could they could have been listening to the stories about education of the health or the healthcare right. or or the or just they could. And have heard that, well, Fidel Castro has been there for 60 years and now his brother. And that's not normal in democracy, but the people in Cuba wanted that that way. <laughs> that's a lie, at least. Uh, well, at least that's not. I, I study physics, so I try to be very rigorous when I talk. Uh, at least that haven't been proved. Right. Because the Cuban regime have ever, never, ever ask to the people actually what do they want right. have never ever submit themselves to the will of the people so to to speak in a language that i think american people understand the cuban revolution have never ever have the consent of the people never <laughs> and that was what my father was um proposing of course not to give consent to the dictatorship but to uh, change the system with the consent of the Cuban people for the first time in more than 50 years. The reaction of the regime, the reaction of Fidel Castro in that moment, the personal reaction was to change the communist constitution to make the system irrevocable and to make the socialism irrevocable. And of course, with that, he, uh, he was not uh, invalidating the Valera project because that was something that was made after the Valera project. And you cannot make a law with that kind of retroactive <laughs> uh, power. But it doesn't matter when you have a total power, <laughs> uh, when you are a totalitarian regime. They ignore their own law. They violated their own law. They never answered to the Varela project and they put in jail all the leaders of the Varela project, with the exception of my father, who they killed 10 years after that. Uh, he was with Harold Severo, Harold and Nicolas friends. Harold was 32 years old when he was killed in 2012 together with my father. But when the Varela project was in their more in their more uh, hot moment, just for saying that like that. He was in the university. He was studying a veterinary. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, Tell me with that word. Veterinaria. Yeah, uh, veterinary school. Oh, veterinary school. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you nailed it. And we, can, we can keep doing that. Any yeah, other one that you need? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> We're here for all that. <laughs> Thanks. If, I, if you want to say it again, and then we'll, we'll edit it so it looks like... He was a student in the university, <laughs> and in the University of Camagüey, actually. And he was so brave and so, and so brilliant and so generous 
that when Harold Severo got in contact with the Varela project, of course he was not a friend of my father or my friend in that moment. We are talking about we are talking 2003, 2004, and he said, "Okay, I cannot." read that, read this, and sign this, and not to share this with my friends in the university. And he started to talk about the Varela project at the university. And he and Roger and, and, and a group of friends started to share the Varela project with the people in the university. And that's something that American people could be listening to that and saying, okay, that's normal. We do that every day at the university. You enter in any campus in the States, and you're going to find a lot of campaigns, a lot of people defending their causes, uh, trying to recruit people to their causes. But in the Cuban communist regime, the universities belong to the revolutionaries. And that is not something that I'm inventing. That's a, the actual slogan of the Cuban revolution. The university is exclusively for revolutionaries. And revolutionaries are people from the Communist Party, people from the Communist Youth, or people to that submit themselves to those institutions. And Harold was the opposite of that, <laughs> and he did it. So that the dean itself, himself expelled him from the university, but like physically pushed him from the, from the University of Kamaway, him and, and other friends because of their uh, enthusiasm with something that was actually in the Cuban law, right. and that was the Varela project. After that, Harold entered in the, in the seminary. He was starting to be a priest. After that, he realized that he was not, has not called to be priest. So he returned to the Christian Liberation Movement, to the Movimiento Cristiano Liberación, that was the movement that my father founded. And he became one of the most important leaders of the movement. And in the middle of that, he was, he was accompanying my father to Santiago de Cuba, which is the second city in importance in, in the country, uh, a big part of the movement. Um, has presence, the presence there in Santiago. So they were traveling to Santiago to see other people from the movement and and they and agents of the Cuban state security hit their car from behind, run them off the road. And the next thing that we knew was that my father was dead. That and hours later, Haru Sepero was also dead in the hospital without receiving any medical attention. And the other two persons that were traveling with them were disappeared, disappeared. uncommunicated by the Cuban state security. And they remained like that till they were expelled from the country. I just want to, uh, very not to throw it, but you mentioned the thing about the Constitution saying that the socialist nature of the country is your... I think some people might hear that and think that it's a phrase that you're using. But I've pulled up... This is what I was doing on my phone. I was looking for the Cuban Constitution in English. For anyone who this is like the first time that you spent more than five minutes thinking about Cuba in this way, this is the actual text of Article 4 of the Constitution. Just try to wrap your head around anything even remotely like this happening here. 
The defense of our socialist homeland is the greatest honor and the supreme duty of every Cuban. Treason is the most serious of crimes. Whoever should commit treason will be subject to the most severe consequences. Very typical Cuban government, vague language. Well, the more severe consequences are very specific in the right. case of Cuba because the death penalty is the Correct. most severe consequence. And then the next line is, the socialist system that this constitution supports is irrevocable. Citizens have the right to combat through any means, including armed combat when other means are not available, against any that intend to topple the political, social, and economic order established by this constitution. So the constitution basically, in theory, would have given anyone the right to walk up to your father and shoot him in the head. That's a very good point because you're reading, you're reading the constitution of 2019. Mm. That was actually <laughs> the second right. time that they changed, well, actually the third one because they, very quickly. Batista in uh, 1952 uh, perpetrated a coup and he basically stopped the constitutional order of of the Cuban people. He he of the of the Cuban yeah of, of Cuba. Mm -hmm. He broke it. So uh, in two, uh, in 1959 when the July. 26 movement got to power with Fidel Castro uh, leading. They didn't follow the constitution of 1940. That was the one that ba that Batista disrespect. But they start to uh, to rule without a, a, a real constitution. I mean, under the under the a protection of the Soviet Union and the crazy head of Fidel Castro. In 1976, they finally approved their constitution without, of course, the consent of the people, at least not the consent of the people in a, in a free and fair uh, plebiscite. And then in 1992, they have to uh, slightly reform that constitution because the Soviet Union disappeared and the Soviet Union was in the, in the, in the prologue of the, of the Cuban Communist Constitution. So they need to reform that and then, in 2003, after the Varela project, they have to change their own law to prevent Cubans to obtain their rights. And then, in 2019, they have to change the constitution again to, to be even more specific in the sense of, um, of taking any possibility for the Cuban people to use the law to change the system off the table. And that's a direct answer to the initiative that we, uh, that we promote and that we have been defending since 2015, which is actually a continuation of the Varela Project. The Varela Project was a call for a referendum. The Cuban regime aberrated their own law to make impossible that. Uh, the Cuban regime uh, put the leaders of the Varela project in, in jail. What the Cuban regime never did was actually asking to the people. So in 2010, my father started um, a campaign, wrote an article to stay, with the intention of starting a campaign saying, okay, you are violating your own law, you're violating the international law, you're violating common sense. So let's 
skip some steps here and go directly to the plebiscite. Let's ask, a, ask to the Cuban people in the ballot box in the, if they want free, fair, multi-party elections. Because if the Cuban people want free, fair, multi-party elections, we need a new system. Because your constitution forbids that to happen. Right. That's the idea that we, uh, that we took to, um, to start Cuba Decide, which is Cuba Decides, which is an initiative to uh, change the system in Cuba uh, and the technical tool that we promote is the holding of a plebiscite, of that plebiscite that my father proposed. And, of course, that's the technical tool. A lot of things have to happen. Uh, the, uh, even more important that the plebiscite itself are the conditions previous to the plebiscite. And that condition should be freedom of expression, freedom of association, the points of the Varela project, actually. And, of course, the... the um, Central point in Cuba de Cide is not even the is not even the the technical tool, but the real strategy, which is how the Cuban people is going to generate the amount of pressure to force that criminals in power to submit to the will of the people, and the answer is well with with civic disobedience, with organization, uh, moving or mobilizing the Cubans inside, but also the Cubans outside. The Cuban nation that lives inside and also outside the island, but also moving the international community, moving the centers of powers, moving the democracies of the world in the sense of supporting that people. And in the middle of that campaign, the Cuban regime changed their own constitution to do first that terrible Article 4 that you just read, which is followed by an Article 5 that established the political system as a single party system, a single communist, fidelista and Marxist system, and I'm quoting also Article 5, and for first time in the history of the Cuban law, they define plebiscites, which is something that, by the way, we are asking because they were, because among other things, they were not regulated in law. So if they are not regulated, they are not forbid. We could ask for that. Well, they regulated, but they they um, regulated as mere surveys. And that Cuban constitution, you could check the last article of the constitution. I think it's two, uh, article 237 or something like that, because they have a lot of articles. And that article states that you cannot use any of these tools to change the system. Wow. So, uh, were we or my father thinking in, in, uh, in the possibility of the Cuban regime transforming itself or actually opening by, a, by goodwill to the Cuban people? Of course not. At the end of the day, this is a fight of families that conform a, a, a society, a nation, against criminals in power. And of course that there is a roadmap to make that change possible, organized, pacific, understandable for the international community according with the international law. And that's the plebiscite, and that's the transition process. But before that, 
comes that personal liberation that we were talking about. Yes. And comes that uh, mobilization of the Cuban society in and out and of the international community. And that's what we are doing with Cuba Decide. So basically, it's a lot of information for a lot of people. I'm sorry. No, I don't be, be sorry. More. This is I more vodka. This is um, more simple. Let's no. next time. The Constitution, the way that we've put it, so everyone understands it, has suppressed every chance that the people themselves have to have a voice. Exactly. And not only has it suppressed any chance they have to have a voice, if they have a voice, they can literally be killed in the middle of the street they for are, having that exactly. voice. They, now, now the regime has the constitutional right to kill you if you want to change the system. So this, uh, the reason why I say that just very simply, just come on, Leonard, you can walk through. <laughs> the way I put that simply so people understand it is for all the people that have for so many times told me and so many people around me that things are different. Not only are they different, they may be worse. Oh, yes than what they were 10 years ago, 30 years ago, because they have just buttoned up every, uh, I mean, any small loophole that they have missed. Exactly. They have been perfeccionando. Perfecting. Perfecting. They are a system of repression, and they have been closing the system and... Uh, in a way, uh, protecting the system from the citizen initiative, from from the human nature, <laughs> from the will of change. They have, and and that is something that they share with other regimes right now in the world <laughs> mm. that have been also tra- evolving to remain in power. But in the in the in the very specific case of, of of the Cuban dictatorship of the Cuban regime, they have learned from other experiences. They have learned from what happened in the Soviet Union. They have learned from what happened in Chile. They have learned from the uh, the end of the apartheid in South Africa. They have learned from the transition in Spain, and they have been transforming their system to make impossible to use that rules against them uh, in a very in a very perverse way but that should that is not going to be a reason to stop trying we just know that we cannot use their law but that was something kind of <laughs> kind of logic from the beginning of course that um, the idea was never rely on their law was relying relying on the will of the given people and that will is a will of change uh, and and the only thing that is sustaining the power of the communist party right now is their criminal activity and the repression i mean the moment in which the day that they do not exert violence or that they cannot assert, assert violence against the people that day, and that day they disappear. It's a lot. There's a lot there. It's a lot. 
I um, it just ta- it's taken me a while to just like put together the next things that I want to say because it's it's incredible to me the amount of time that I've spent talking to people that don't uh, necessarily understand this right the fact that the change the change and those things that so many people around the world say that are good mm-hmm. about Cuba the health care the education all those things that are lies by the way they're all lies we don't lies. have to talk about that but are lies they're all lies mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but they they don't want to look past the surface because people are so quickly to just accept like oh no but that's fine that this is what we're being told that's fine and honestly Cuba is a small country 90 miles away from South Florida and a lot of people don't a lot of people in middle America and around the country don't want to spend their brain power thinking about that well they should I mean I don't want to be no no they should no you're right they should they should because it's it's something to be said that that can happen so close to this country and for us to be okay with it and then to say uh I don't know how long ago things changed to say that things changed and they changed for the better. Yes. And have, I mean, the consequences for the hemisphere, including the United States, of have tolerated 60 years of communist dictatorship in the island of Cuba have been devastating. I mean, have been devastating to Venezuela, have been de- devastating to Nicaragua, have been devastating to the uh, democratic, democratic stability of the hemisphere, have been devastating to the uh, even even to the to the fight against the criminal activities in the in the region uh, and. And the consequences are also lived here in the United States because this country is, for instance, the number one consumer of drugs in the hemisphere. And Cuba have been part of that, or the Cuban regime have been part of that machinery for decades right now. The Cuban regime have been, uh, have been providing sanctuary to terrorists for decades right now. Not just Latin American terrorists, not just the Colombian guerrillas, but also um, uh, also American terrorists, but also European terrorists. The Cuban regime, the Cuban regime has put together what I think, and now you could think that this is exaggerated, but I, I, I honestly think that the Cuban intelligence apparatus. Would, that is known by this by the letter G and the number two, the G2, the Cuban Intelligence Security, Security Apparatus, was very well trained by the KGB at the beginning. Then they were even better trained by the Stasi, the German Intelligence Apparatus. I'm not inventing this. You can go to, to Berlin or Google it and find, for instance, that the interference plans of the Cuban state security in Latin America are actually German plans, are plans created in collaboration with the Stasi during the 80s. Um, So that in that sense, I believe that right now, for instance, the Cuban intelligence apparatus has 
has a much more wide understanding and a bigger, by far, influence in the region that the C than the CIA, for instance. And we could be against any kind of influence, CIA and G2, but it's very, very dangerous that a communist regime has that kind of influence in Latin America. And there we are talking about um, infiltration of political movements, interference of, of, of social movements, you, uh, um, trafficking in persons through the Cuban Communist Medical Brigades, corruption through, for instance, um, the coimas of Odebrecht, uh, giving sanctuary to terrorists, and, uh, and, and, and all the related with the, uh, with the drug dealer activities in, in the region. The relationships between the Cuban intelligence apparatus and the Colombian guerrillas as FARC are so anxious as anxious is the uh, revolution. I mean, the, the first conversations between the FARC and Fidel Castro took place uh, at, at the end of the 50s. Wow. And, the, and the beginning of the 60s. Uh, uh, another Colombian guerrilla, as the, as the LLN, ELN, but I don't know how to translate it for oh, English. Oh, yeah, that's a good question. I'll, I'll come back. Please. Uh, <laughs> Google was, was Was co-founded by Fidel Castro. <laughs> Actually, the head of the uh, ELN lived now in Havana. And the Colombian uh, uh, government have been asking for the extradition of Gavino, which is, the, which is the, the leader of the ELN, and the Cuban regime have been refusing that. And the ELN now has a big part of the Venezuelan territory and the Venezuelan crisis that have been provoked by the Cuban regime, at least co-provoked by the Cuban regime, has caused the biggest crisis of refugees that this hemisphere have lived, I don't know, in the last... 100 years. So the ELN in Spanish, NLA, which is why, yeah, yeah the, Nas the National Liberation Army. Hmm. Thank you so much. So let me ask you, in just from obviously what you've seen, why has it been so easy for the United States to turn a blind eye to this for so long? Well, I don't think it has been easy. You... I mean, this country passed by the experience of the missile... missile yeah. A missile crisis. The missile, missile crisis. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. And after that, uh, there, they signed um, an agreement with the Soviet Union, and a pact, actually, that prevent the United States for uh, interfering, that they, that's, the, that's one of the words that they use, The Kennedy-Khrushchev Agreement, you could Google it, please, um, which actually prevent the United States of interfering in any Cuban domestic issue, but also commands the government of the United States to stop any intent of defeating the Cuban Revolution, any intent organized in the United States or in the surrounding territories. So it's not just, it's not just a non-aggression pact. It's actually the way in which Fidel Castro and Nikita Khrushchev make Kennedy and United States 
consequence, no, it's not consequence, following uh, administrations, not just to commit with the idea of not disturbing Fidel Castro, but also with the idea of taking care that anyone in the region was disturbing Fidel Castro. And that's a legal document that was signed after um, Nikita Khrushchev put 42 missiles in Cuban territory to threaten this, uh, this country's security. That happened. That's something that the most part of the, of the people doesn't know about it. Uh, but that agreement has been respected by all the administrations of this country since Kennedy administration. Wow. It's very frustrating, but it's reality. And I, I mean, it's history. But the other, the other face of the coin is that what Fidel Castro said is that he was being attacked from the United States and what he said to the world was that he was uh, David in front of Goliath. Right. Yeah. And I mean, you know, the rest of the world love that kind of stories, especially if they give them the opportunity to be against the United States. For sure. So it, that was very, um, very well uh, sought by, uh, by the Cuban regime. And that has been present till today. I mean, that's, that's a very heavy way that all the Cuban people carry over our shoulders and it's the fact that the rest of the world is not when they when they look at Cuba they are not actually seeing us they are not seeing the Cuban people they are they are seeing through all these crystals of ideology and lies and Thank being you. against the United States and being against imperialism and uh, with all those... You want something else? Another one? <laughs> okay. Please. Uh, all that... All that garbage, all that crap in the middle prevent solidarity. I mean, the Cuban people haven't, ha haven't enjoyed solidarity from the world almost never. I mean... And... We have been suffering one of the most violent, aggressive, and criminal dictatorships in the world. And if we were going to fight against that, we would fight against it alone. It's basically, so, we would fight against it alone. Yes. Because basically everything that you said would mean that, again, it goes back to the Cuban people themselves making that decision to fight against the regime inside of Cuba because they would have to make that decision to do that oh, because the are... rest of the world is kind of just okay with it being the way that it is. Michael, that was the reason Fidel and Raul Castro decided to kill my father. The reason was that they in some point realized that they could do it 
and get away with that, and get away with murdering the most important dissident of the of that decade of the Cuban history, and get away with that. And they did it, and nothing have happened. Thanks, Emma. Thank you. And that's why this that we are talking in such a light way with yeah. my very bad English has so tragic consequences over the life of the of the Cuban people and for our nation because the price of loneliness is the slaughtering. The price is that the price is the impunity. I mean when the rest of the world decide to to make silence or, or to look away, but they are actually granting its impunity to the criminals. And that's what we have been suffering, but not now, not, not just my family, not just my father, from the very beginning, from, the, from 1959, the amount of people that I have got to know in this city that have friends, fathers, grandfathers that were killed in the first years of the revolution without, without even the idea of a fair trial. It's huge, I mean, we are talking about thousands of people killed in extrajudicial or arbitrary uh, executions. We're talking about tens of thousands of political prisoners we're talking about probably also tens of thousands of people that have disappeared trying to escape the country. We don't even have the actual math, and we don't have it because that dictatorship hasn't ended. So we haven't been able to actually count our deaths. Jeez. It, it puts, uh, for the people that aren't, that may listen to this that aren't like very that may not be of Cuban descent or be Cuban or whatever it puts a lot of things in perspective for a lot of people because again you go a lot of places all over the country and when you say that you're Cuban a lot of people don't know what that means really they don't understand the the gravity of that for us you know like um we lost a lot of things about our culture, our people, our country. You know, my grandparents lost everything that they knew to come here to give us another opportunity. And there's people that have lost their lives. They've lost their freedom. They've lost so many things. And we're still living that today. And that is, to me, it's tragic that it happened and that it's happened. What's even more tragic is that it continues to happen and that people continue to turn a blind eye to it and pretend that things are getting better. There's not an excuse for that. I mean, I know that you have very accurately uh, said that it's a lot of information. Uh, we, I, I have told you a lot of points. Probably that's not a didactic way of doing this. No, no, um, this is the perfect way to do this. But we could make it very simple. I mean, here in the state, you have the opportunity to choose whoever is going to run the country. That's something that the Cuban people hasn't had in almost 75 years. 
There's not an excuse for that. There's not an excuse for preventing a nation, preventing a people from their right to decide. Even that is true. We have a, an opportunity to decide who runs the country, but even more so we can say when we don't like who runs the country. Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, we can sit here. We can open that door. And we can, we can trash all the people that we don't like. And I'm pretty confident in the fact that I'm going to be, I'm going to make it home. Yes, you are. Hey, we, we've done it a lot on this podcast. <laughs> we, have, we have done it several times on this podcast, and um, we will continue to do so. In Cuba, they can't do that. They can't openly say things and feel comfortable with their walk home. Oh, yeah. And that, to me, I like I it. I, I can't even imagine. At least being the way that I am, the, the way that I like torch things that I think are wrong, and I think that um, I'm incredibly opposed to. I couldn't imagine not having that freedom and i have that freedom because my grandparents sacrificed everything to give it to me and that to me is the greatest gift i've ever been given and it happened way before i was even born mm -hmm. so it just it, and it keeps and it keeps on just like going in circles in my head is the fact that people keep on saying that it's better things are better things are getting better and they're just not They are not getting better. I'm getting worse. I'm getting worse from any point of view. I'm getting worse since the point of view of the of the radicalization of the regime and law. I'm getting worse from the point of view of the quality of life of the Cuban people. I mean, the whole point of why we, we that are embedded in this fight for freedom had to make a donation drive <laughs> was because the Cuban people is starving. Well, But, well done, by the way. Yeah, that was a good segue. <laughs> a good transition. For you not doing podcasts very often, that was an incredible segue. I, I could not have done that I'm better probably myself. probably going to start a podcast now yeah. good. In, in, in Spanglish. That's good. Nick can, Nick can do the, all the producing. Uh, it was because the... Cuba is in crisis, but in a very serious crisis, in a in a in a humanitarian crisis. I mean, the just imagine that the system, the whole system, education, healthcare, infrastructure, transportation, everything, collapsed. But they collapsed like 10 years ago, and they have been running in, like inertially, and now there is no any any resource that the Cuban people could use. Right now, you, you are, if you're in Cuba, you are praying for your kids, your elderly, not to get sick. Because if you enter to a hospital, you're probably going to leave the hospital sicker than when you enter. I mean, we are talking, I don't want to be graphic because it's very tragic, but you could enter to a, to an urgent care room in Cuba and find bottles of urine below the beds of the sick, of the, of, of, of the people that is there. There is no food, there is no medicines, 
there is no water, there is no running water in, in many places in Cuba. And all this is taking place in the, middle, in, 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 in the midst of the COVID-19. I mean, people is actually suffering, actually suffering, not just the lack of freedom, but the lack of freedom in the middle of a crisis in which is dramatic for, for, for a mother, for a father, not to have anything to give to their children and not to have the possibility of do anything to change that situation. <laughs> that's the most dramatic thing. And, and that's why with this, this uh, donation drive and the reaction of the regime to the thousands of pounds of humanitarian aid that we send and that we got to put in the in the in the Puerto of Mariel in Cuban Haver was to block that humanitarian aid. And they have been arbitrarily retaining cans of food and medicine and hygiene products in the midst of a humanitarian crisis just because they don't want that the independent civil society and the Cuban churches, the Christian churches, to be the ones that actually distribute that um, that humanitarian aid. So we, 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 I we want, should, I, I yeah, want to get this, yeah, yeah, I ahead, get this completely straight. So you guys started a, um, a drive for all kinds of products. Um, health products, food, hygiene products, all those things. The world in the last eight months has been in a worldwide um, pandemic. Uh, we have talked at length how the United States is in crisis. The United States is in pretty good shape compared to other parts of the, uh, of the world, which I don't know if people want to hear that or not, but it's true. Mm -hmm. Um so you guys, what exactly, like how much are we talking? Like how much stuff, this drive, what did it produce exactly? Like how many pounds of things? Like uh, 50,000 pounds of food and medicines uh, and hygiene products, which is not a lot. But I, it's important to say that everything was collected in one day. And everything was, uh, was totally citizen-led. There was zero uh, money from government institutions, organizations. Everything was just put nice. there by the by by the people, by the nice by the work, community. U.S. government. And then, so the idea was to send this to Cuba, and then for it to get distributed. How? We um, ahead of that, we talk with um, some religious leaders and also with some civil society leaders. And here I have to make a parenthesis, civil society in Cuba. I was gonna ask you what that meant. Yes, yes. Independent civil society, which is usually an adjective that you don't use for civil society, but civil society should be independent. But in the, in the, in the communist regime, they are uh, gongos that they sell to the international community as um, independent organizations that are actually are in charge of repression. And there is the brave people that dare to live in truth and dare to organize themselves to help the people, and they are subjects of repression. Those kind of people were the ones that we talked with, 
and they, some of them are heads of the position, some of them are independent artists that were ready to distribute that humanitarian aid. So we create a network of um, religious leaders and independent uh, leaders of the civil society that were ready to receive that um, humanitarian aid and distribute it among the people. Ahead of time also, we created a, a website and invited the Cuban families to register with their name, a phone number, and address to try to get those that actually need or that were in a more critical need for these products. Almost 15,000 families registered. Families. And families, yes. Okay. And this is a very big number because what you still don't know is that the Cuban regime blocked our website a few hours after we put it out. A few hours. If a I can few just, hours. For people listening, because you mentioned gongos, mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's a term that we're, I think a lot of people are unfamiliar with here because it's such an alien idea. We're familiar with NGOs, the non-governmental organizations. A, a gongo is a government-organized, non-governmental organization. Government-organized, non... Say it again? Government-organized, non-governmental organization. Yeah, I like it's it. It's like the organization of, I don't know, the Federation of, uh, of Women in Cuba, which is led by the Communist Party, organized by the regime, but presented to the world as an NGO. We were not talking about those. We were talking about dissidents, we were talking about independent artists, we were talking about um, people, religious leaders. Yeah, actually, actual NGOs that, of course, are not recognized by the Cuban regime. By the way, many of the Cuban churches are non-recognized by the Cuban regime either. And they have been struggling to survive because they um, intervene their temples. Uh, I don't. My, my English is not enough to explain what they do with the with the Christian churches in Cuba. So there's churches. Oh man, such a mess. So there's churches also that are not recognized by the Cuban government. Oh, the most part of them. The most part of them. I mean, I I I, I don't know exactly the number. But in 1959, there were, let's say, 110 uh, churches in Cuba, including the Catholic Church, the, I don't know, Baptist Church, Evangelical Church. 110. But in 60 years, a lot of new denominations have appeared in the world and right. also in Cuba. Neither, neither of those are recognized. Many of them are under repression. Many of those, uh, a leader has been in jail or um, expelled from their houses, expelled from their temples. It's, it's yeah, because it's religion, religion is a freedom. To be able to, uh, like, to express it's, your own religious beliefs is a freedom. The thing is that the system cannot tolerate any alternative. Even if the alternative is not contrary to the regime, it is an alternative. Communists cannot live with that. How can somebody say that to themselves and think that that is okay? Because it's like, uh, just, I don't know. Just how you said it, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense to me. 
So for them, even if um, they're not against the government, even the government won't recognize them because it's not the religion that they recognize. Well, that's that's a very good point, and I think that's a point for everybody that is listening to ask ask to yourself: How much are you ready to forgive? How much are you ready to apologize in the name of what? In the name of an ideology, in the name of an ideal, in the name of a, or out of hate for another, <laughs> a, for, for another cause? How much are you ready to apologize? And we have been, we have been victims of that, of, of that bias from from the rest of the world in the case of the cuban people if i get your question right in the case of the cuban people i'm not and now i'm not making apologies for our people but well we live under a totalitarian uh, very aggressive violent police kind of regime uh, in which in the moment that you express yourself, you are going to be repressed. You could be in jail, you could be just expelled from the university, you could be, maybe it's your family, the one that is going to pay the price, or you could be killed. The last two are obviously the worst. Family pays the price for you having a freedom of expression, or obviously you are no longer with the world. Back to the drive. So collected 50,000 pounds of all these different types of products. You only had a website up for a few hours, and then the Cuban government blocked it. And then in those few hours, you had 15,000 families, which could easily represent over 50,000 people. Yeah, and, and, and some of them were able to enter later through VPNs that by the way, now have been blocked also. <laughs> and they block also Telegram. Telegram? Yes. They block Telegram? Yes. Fuck. So, <laughs> then... Coño, la grosería, man. Sorry. So... Yo debo estar medio sorda. So the... So then, what happened next? After you had this array of people that were willing to distribute product. You had 15,000 families. What happened next? Well, they militarized the um, municipio of Mariel, so the, the town where the port is, which is known as Mariel, is close to Pinal del Rio. They militarized the town. They used the COVID excuse to close all the ways to enter and to get out of the of the town into the port, and they um, threatened the religious leaders that were in charge of receiving the, the the cargo. Because, by the way, we didn't send the cargo as ourselves. We donate everything to the to a church here in the States that made a donation to another church in Cuba in order to be able to actually make the process. 
because it's, if we as a, a civil society organization, a Cuban civil society organization, make that donation, the Cuban regime is not going to accept it from the beginning. I mean, they are going to prevent the freight forward for doing the process. So we had to do it in that way, and even in that way, they threatened the, uh, one of the religious leaders that were in charge of receiving the cargo, and they basically retained the cargo that have been retained for more than two months now in the middle of a humanitarian crisis. And many of those religious leaders went out and asked publicly for the liberation of the humanitarian aid Many of the Cuban of the Cuban citizens, many of those fifteen thousand families also did it. People in the international community also um, pronounced heads of some of these um, churches, but like um, uh, world heads of those churches also pronounced. And the answer of the regime have been just confiscating the all the tens of thousands of pounds of food and hygiene products and medicines that the Cuban people need. And by the way, I'm just going to make a very quick explanation. We are doing this through religious leaders and independent civil society because historically all the donations that are sent to the island and ends or lands in the hands of the Cuban regime are then sold to the Cuban people. Oh, in sold. Sold, thank you, yeah, to the no, Cuban no, people. I'm just, uh, so they, well, they sell the humanitarian aid. So they get... So, they so <laughs> we cannot give it to them because they are going to sell it and the Cuban people have no money and have no capacity to do it, but what happened to you? Mike's going to have a stroke. <laughs> so then they get the food and the things that people donate and they sell it and then they sell it so this is things getting better this is what we call getting better this is so uh, it's crazy so then so the 50,000 pounds of things where are the 50,000 pounds we don't know we suppose that the last the last time that we saw it was through the GPS tracker that we put in the containers that were more likely destroyed because we lose we lost signal more than two months ago. So they were in 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 the port of Mariel. Right. So Raúl's probably eating cans of goya right now. Yeah, of goya. On a golden yeah, chair. A lot of goya. On there. all of his uh, baby wipes that he's probably sitting on, and then he's going to sell them <laughs> to the people. It's just crazy. It's just like, um, you know, when when Nick first mentioned, we, we talked about this what like a month ago. How long ago was it? When was the? Well, the, the the donation drive was in May. Yeah. We were able to announce that the food was in Cuba. Yeah. In August. Yeah, August. And this was something Birthday. that. That to your point, you know, a lot of people here, even people who were not usually engaged in this sort of thing, participated. The the one who comes to mind, just because I follow him and he's been invited here, but he, he's less comfortable with English, is uh, 
Gustavo Trujillo, the, the Cuban assassin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know that he drove as far as this is the MMA fighter that we've talked about. Oh. Maybe having on here with a translator and all yeah, that. Yeah, you should. A, uh, who I, judging by his t-shirts, would not have his press people give us the request for minimizing grocery. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I do my best. I do my best. No, but he's... Uh, but you, you actually minimize grocery. No, you can... You can you with Gustavo, I'm sure you can. You'll have a contest of who does more grosseria. Listen, yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah. I find myself <laughs> articulate. I really appreciate your content no, no. right now. Oh no, 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 but but my point is, Gustavo, for example, an MMA fighter, who you know he lives in. The, this guy went as far as Tampa and drove back, collecting stuff from Cuban American families on the way from Tampa to yeah, Miami. In Tampa. And now that shit's being sold. Sorry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yes, Vite. Vite. <laughs> No, that, it's that, contagious. It's it's tough when you get all worked up. I get no, worked no, no. up very easily, so it's yes. not. Uh, it's part of just my yeah. fiber. The that part was beautiful. The part yes. which we, I mean, I, I have to confess, I was afraid. I mean, we started that. We asked for donations in the middle of a pandemic. There is also a crisis here in the state. It's not comparable. There's no point of comparison, but there's also a crisis. So we saw, okay, there's, is, there's a possibility that people is not going to show up because they are taking care of themselves and their families right now. And hundreds of families passed by in the middle of the pandemic to leave their, their donations, to leave cans to leave. And then Cuba basically wanted no part of it. The exactly. regime wanted no part of it actually demonstrating who is the blockade between the aid and the Cuban citizens, who is actually the obstacle. Which is the government. Which is the regime. Yeah. And it's, and it's been regime. that way for, so in, until about 2009, I was on the board of uh, Raíces de Esperanza. Mm-hmm. And maybe around 2006 or seven, we did a similar drive during one of our, uh, I, I don't know whether you were aware of them then, there, there were uh, conferences on university campuses. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we did a similar thing. And it was the same, the same thing. It got held up in Cuba. I don't remember at which port, but it was all like a collaboration between uh, Raices and uh, Caritas Cubana. Okay. Uh, I'm, I, I think even that even though we put up pictures of our volunteers uh, packaging the stuff and all that, we tried to make sure that that our name was not attached to it because we feared that that same sort of thing would happen. But of course it happened. Yeah. So it's, this is a, a long-standing practice. Yep. It is. What, um, where we're at right now, I, let, I mean, I know we're in a weird part of life, right? We're in a, still in a pandemic and uh, the United States is in this like tumultuous like election thing and it's a weird time. What are your personal goals for the next five years? I hope we solve the situation sooner than that. Uh, I will explain myself. Um, she could change her face. No, no, I just, because I, I, I was just going to ask, what do you mean? <laughs> That's all what does this Tostones mean? Tostones and carne de puerco. No, that also. But um, 
even when everything is so difficult and so dramatic in this point, we shouldn't lose sight that Hugo Chavez and Fidel Castro are not in this world anymore. Raul Castro is close to leave this world. Um, the Cuban people are, which is the most important thing, and I should have begun with this, the Cuban people is not, is not willing to um, bear that system anymore. I mean, for instance, the last month, um, they registered at least 42 spontaneous or organized protests against the regime only during the last month. And oh, those were yeah. the ones that were able to be documented in the middle of a country that has zero um, access to information, zero freedom of press, where at least 42 protests were documented. That's the amazing. Cuban people want change. The Cuban people is convinced that the way out of this crisis that didn't start with COVID-19, that started with the regime, is changing the system. So that uh, I think there are other factors. The, the regime is very vulnerable, not just because of the biological factors, but also because of the lack of uh, the, the lack of proposal, they have nothing to offer to the Cuban people, but they are stubbornness to keep power. And um, everybody understands that there is not going to be any, nothing good is going to come from the regime. Nothing good for their life. There is no hope on the regime. So I sense that the Cuban people is ready for that change. I sense that the Cuban regime is now more vulnerable than probably never in the history, or at least there are very few precedents of situations similar to this. And I also think that even when there is a lot of abadi in the international community, there is a lot of cynicism, there is a lot of complicity. There is also awareness that didn't exist two or five years ago. I mean, everybody in Latin America understands that what is going on in Venezuela is very bad. And almost everybody also knows that it's taking place because of the Cuban regime is helping. And every the, the consequences for the democracies in the region, including the United States, have been more evident in the, during, the last, during the last years. So I think that we are in a special window to act, to put the bigger possible amount of pressure over those criminals that all that they want is to remain in power, to remain being millionaires with the resources that belong to the Cuban people. And those guys, I mean, probably 
Fidel Castro and the bunch of generals of this generation that are dying now had other uh, resources to stay in power. But their sons and their grandsons and granddaughters, by the way, and they have no symbolic um, legacy. They has, uh, they don't want to end their life with the, with uh, being in the in the red list of Interpol. Mm. So there is a lot of leverage that the international community now has to pressure them supporting what the Cuban people is actually demanding, which is the change of the system through submitting that criminals to the will of the people. I mean, uh, American administration, Europeans, Latin American democracies, they don't have to invent the solution for the Cuban people. We already have it, and it's actually very understandable and simple. Just ask the people. And by doing so, you are starting a transition process. And transition process are already started. And there are some ABC that you have to do. You need um, temporary laws. You need a new constitution. You need a transitional justice program. All this is more or less uh, a standard. <laughs> and we could apply it once we force those criminals to submit to the win of the people. In order to do that, we need to write their internal pressure, but we cannot do that in a reckless way. We need to do that with the support of that part of the Cuban nation that lives out of Cuba, and also forcing the international community to do what they should be doing since 60 years right now, which right. is supporting that people in their will to change the system. Now, I think that we have a set of conditions that make that strategy doable, at least more likely than it was eight years ago with Hugo Chavez and Fidel Castro being the prima donnas of Latin America. Yes. No, I'm good. I'm ready. So, no, no, no. I, uh, so, I, I, I want to transition to lighter things. No? Uh, That's a hard transition. I know, I know. But I, th but I think I have found the transition. For me, for me, the color. yeah, for, no, for for me the transition. Second glass of vodka. No, I'm I'm, I'm much. I'm, well, that's also good. Um, for me, the transition question is this, and then we can get into the lighter things about what life has been like here. How long have you been in the in the U.S. since since when? First time was 2013. Okay. But I have been in and out for yeah. a while. Okay. So safe to say for years so my my transition question is on all the things that we've talked about to this point especially what the solutions are in the present right not necessarily the history although maybe there's some of the history how if at all has your time away from cuba affected the way that you see cuba because it's a different perspective no 
you're you were in a peculiar position because that's the lighter question. No, no, that's the transition to the lighter question, okay. and then we'll get oh. into lighter things. I'm interested in the lighter, but I'm interested in this well, transition the, question the, too. The, the lighter question relates to all of the non-Cuba things since coming here, and you know, a lot of people might be curious about what things you've experienced since. I think that you were in a peculiar position while you were in Cuba because yeah. you were so engaged and grew up with the movement. No, mm -hmm. but how has that perspective or, or that experience of not being in Cuba changed how you see Cuba? And then we'll get into other things like American barbecue and stuff. <laughs> you know, I get very suspicious of myself. I get very suspicious of uh, my opinions, very suspicious of um, how would I think and speak if I were in uh, my house in El Cerro in Havana. Uh, I think that that's the most direct way to answer your question. Okay. And, but also, I have now an understanding of how the world perceives our situation and how to communicate our situation, which is something that is a work in progress. It's, it's never stopping, right? And I I think I have now a better understanding of the Cuban people and of our tragedy than I had when I only knew one perspective. I have a huge amount of compassion for people like your grandpas. I mean, I have been in a, a in a grocery here in Miami and run into a couple of old people, a marriage that have been together for 50 years. And uh, The man have look at my eyes, recognize me, and start to talk to me, and told uh, and and he suddenly told me, "We lost the best country in the world." Like that, I mean, that generation have the experience and the grief of having lost the best country in the world. No one in my generation is able to say that. Yeah. I cannot say that I miss the best country in the world. Of course, I miss my country every day, but I'm very aware that it's not the best country in the world. Your grandpas, my grandpas, our elderly believe that they were living the best country in the world. And of course, that's an idealization. Of course, it was not a paradise. Right. But for some reason, that generation is able to say that, and my generation is not. Yeah. So I think now I understand better the Cuban nation. Yeah. I think um, it makes me think of... Uh, Uh, until earlier this year, I was working at a, a cigar magazine, 
and one of my colleagues was actually the cousin of of Carluba, my my uh, business partner life, now, life partner, my, my business life partner. Uh, and this is sort of a a vulgar way of putting it, in the strict sense of the word vulgar. Um, but he left Cuba maybe the same year that you did, um, maybe one or two years before, and we would travel a lot, writing travel stories. And, of course, he would encounter Americans who would tell him, you know, I can't wait to go to Cuba and eat all the Cuban food. And the thing that he would always tell people was that his favorite Cuban food was croqueta preparada. <laughs> and that he had his first croqueta preparada when he was 26 years old in Miami. Yeah, I mean, that's... And so you gain an appreciation in some ways for that's all of the these tragedy. things, you know. Uh, and you understand where you were from and where you live. There are things that you, of course, understand in a way that the two of us could never understand it. Yeah. And yet you had to leave to understand certain things about where you came from. Yes, but for instance, I arrived in New York... I believe, March, February, 2013. Cold. And I found there traditions and la sobrecama de la abuela better preserved that I have ever seen in El Cerro. So I don't know if that is a special condition of the Cuban community, but the way in which the Cuban people in the exile, that part of the nation in the exile, have been able and and, and have cared enough to preserve those traditions, to transmit those traditions. You know something that actually struck me like a lot was when Fidel Castro died, I felt it as a failure. My first reaction was unbelievable that this guy ha has died in his bed after all the crimes that he has performed. And then I turned on the, I was in Miami, I was in my, in, in in the house of my family in Miami, I turned on the TV and I saw all those crazy Cubans going out, <laughs> celebrating, and I said, this, these guys are crazy. I, 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 I saw, really? Why is, there, why is that? What is there to celebrate? This criminal has died in his bed. But the day after that, I start to visit from the car, I, I didn't participate there yet. I start to see the faces of the people, the multiple generations, the deep incomprensión. I don't know how to say that in English. Um how the rest of the world were not able to, to comprehend, understand, yeah. to comprehend what was taking place. Uh -huh. And I was deeply, deeply moved to see grandmas that were not celebrating. They were just saying, well, 
at least he's not there anymore. And what was more, what was even more moving for me was to see the granddaughters and the grandsons, which do not speak quite well Spanish <laughs> or Cuban, but we're so happy because of their grandmas and their grandpas were at least living that moment and that were celebrating in Versailles without actually speaking Spanish, but saying that they were Cuban and that they were happy. For me, that was, I think that that was a moment of epiphany. I mean, I, I think that it was a moment of actually understanding the, the tragedy and, the, and also all the dreams and all, all the potential that the Cuban nation has. Yeah. So here, here's what I was transitioning to with that. So that's how you, be, not being in Cuba has changed your perspective yeah, on Cuba. get lighter. How, how has your perspective on the United States changed and what are some of the things that you've enjoyed the most in the short time that you've, that you've been here? And it doesn't have to be in Miami. To give you an example, again, with Andy, you know, I had, uh, it was a very unique position for me to be in. I was, I was with somebody, you know, traveling almost every month to do these travel stories for a magazine. And we were basically getting paid to be tourists. And he traveled more in a matter of, you know, six or seven years than most people who were born here travel in a lifetime. Mm -hmm. uh, and I imagine you've been in a somewhat similar position because this activism takes you places. Uh, so what are some of the things that, you know, that you're struck by? And you can go as as deep and profound as you want about life here, or you had a sandwich that you really like, so whatever. Yeah, yeah, the Belgian chocolate have been quite a <laughs> Belgian chocolate. You heard it here first. <laughs> yeah, that was another epiphany. But uh, the access to the information. Mm -hmm. I mean, in Cuba, you're always struggling just to know what is going on. Sure. And here you have that window open. That's definitely something that 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 I love about being free. Yeah. And uh, the sense of power, in the sense in which. The limit is set by yourself and not by the power. <laughs> That's something that I imagine that only experience people that come from totalitarian regimes. Uh, that's something that for an American kid or the most kids in the world, well, the half of the kids in the world, is taken for granted. Mm -hmm. And you are going to get so far as you want that's something that you cannot say in Cuba. And that's, uh, that's something that you can say here. There's some frustrating things also, but those are sure. quite good. Let's talk more about Belgian chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a big fan of uh, milk chocolate myself. Oh, I'm yeah? not a big bitter chocolate person, but... Um, oh, those two, but Belgium... <laughs> it's new for me. <laughs> I can imagine. I can imagine. It's um, 
So it's been a total of like four years here, you said? No, I, 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 I have been in and out since 2013. Mm. But uh, during the first years, I was going back and forth Havana and other cities in Cuba and traveling a lot. I mean, this pandemic has been actually the period of, the period of time that I have been like, uh, I don't know how to say it in Spanish, in English, but say that I have been uh, consecutivamente hey. in the country. Consecutively. Right? Yeah, consecutively, consecutively here. in the country. Yeah. So consecutively in Miami or just in the country? In Miami, in Miami and in the country. What is, um, because there's such a, there's such a wide range of Cubans in Miami. You have uh, my grandparents that have been here for a long time. And then you have people like Nick and I that are, you know, Cuban, but born here. What are some of the things that you notice about? the people in the culture that maybe have struck you a little differently? There are some families that decided not to talk about Cuba. Mm. And <coughs> in some cases, it led to a distortionate idea of what Cuba is for their grandsons and granddaughters. Because the scene with Cuba is that if you don't talk about it, others are going to do it. <laughs> and if you do not transmit what you know, others are going to transmit what they are told to do. So it's sometimes frustrating to find Cubans that have a very twisted idea of the reality or that have been in a very frustrating way intoxicated with the communist propaganda even when they are in a free country and they are grandsons and granddaughters of people that suffer in the island. I. I could get very mad hearing excuses like, well, Cubans or all Cubans things like that because they cannot forget what they live in Cuba. I mean, there is nothing forgettable about it. Right. It's all the contrary. You need to explain the situation. You need to tell the history. Of course, people can take their own conclusions and they are inviting to do, invited to do so, but they need to have the information. They need to have the facts in a, in a real and in a, in a very concrete and accurate way. And that's definitely not the way that the Cuban regime and its gongos here in the States are selling and there are a lot of them i mean there <laughs> there is even a july 26 movement in the states please check it check the website of july 26th movement in the states they're a gongo of the cuban regime 
They are intoxicating the American public with lies and with very specific call to actions that goes from the end of the embargo to the uh, silence of the dissidents. For me, it was so frustrating to discover, for instance, that, and, and we are very close to the elections, but I'm not talking about domestic politics, I'm talking about the international communism. It was so frustrating to discover that there was a website called International Progressive, in which you can find, for instance, uh, people as Bernie Sanders and uh, people as uh, the vice president of Spain and people as the um, elected president of Bolivia and people as Noam Chomsky and people as Gabriel Garcia Bernal, everybody together in this international or progressive international. And when you go and see what are the campaigns of this new forum, the first one is one that have been the slogan of the repressors against us in the international community and by us I mean the Cuban dissidents. I have been I have been repressed and screamed at and repudiated in international forums by the intelligence apparatus of the Cuban regime with the same slogan that the progressive international has in their website naming a campaign which name is Hands of Cuba. In Spanish, they say, Con Cuba no te metas. It means, with the communist regime, Hands of the communist regime. That's a campaign against the Cuban people. And it's the campaign that these guys, that has all the right to get together and to disseminate their ideas, have regarding to Cuba. That's very frustrating. That's a very distortionate and twisted idea of what the international community should be doing. That's the opposite of being solidarious with the Cuban people. But we were being lighter. Uh, do you have anywhere that you want to go? I mean, so here's, I mean, we haven't talked food very much. Oh, no. I mean, we talked about uh, the sandwich. That's mm -hmm. a, pretty much the, the furthest that we went. Um, Which, by the way, I would like to invite you to eat here at some point when we're not doing all of this microphone shit. Yeah. I think um, eating here would be a nice... It would yeah. be my pleasure. <laughs> it would be a, uh, an interesting perspective for our kind of our mission with our food and, and our company. But no, I mean, uh, I think food-wise we covered chocolate. We did. And, Belgium, uh, but... Belgium chocolate. Specific... <laughs> But Baracoa chocolate is also great. Which one is it? Baracoa, which is from Guantanamo. But first we have to liberate Guantanamo. That part that is not the American base. Watch out, Belgium. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're coming for you. Um, no, I mean, I, I have, I, I, food-wise, I have you little... Wanna, you want to transition to our recommendations? Please. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... Um, so uh -huh. this is this is how we always end the show. Okay. Everyone recommends. So it could be anything. It could be a book, a movie, a song, a place you went, a 
a sand or a, a chocolate that you ate, whatever. Or a sandwich. Or a sandwich. Yeah. Anything you want to recommend to people who are listening, you can recommend as many things as you want. So you can go light, you can go he- whatever. I will start so that you have some time to think. Mm-hmm. I have two recommendations. Actually, how do you, you have? Re- we just did this yesterday. How do you have? Oh, I always have. I always have things. I always God. have things. One of them is a shameless plug for a past guest. Uh, so you want to go to mybigfatcubanfamily.com. <laughs> okay. Or, right. or go to the Instagram page for my big fat Cuban family that is run by a uh, one-time guest of this podcast, Marta Darby. She's the best. She is great. She is the original Cuban-American food blogger. She was blog. She's, you know, of another generation and yet was blogging before any of us even knew what blogs were. I know. I think, didn't she just call me out on Twitter a little while ago? Probably. We did that croqueta, uh, that, uh, that video that you had. You Maybe. I don't know. Do. Yeah. I don't know. She she, I think did. she did. I'm sure you deserved it. I did uh, not deserve it. But she's, uh, she's doing giveaways. So oh, yeah. get on my Big Fat Cuban family. You can find links to giveaways. She's because uh, she. I What's think she giving away? I forget, but it's a bunch of giveaways because it's like the anniversary of her blog or something. Wow. So happy birthday to her blog. And go and, and enter giveaways for tacitas and things. Uh, I, I know tacitas is one of them, uh, but you can win stuff. And then the other recommendation that I have, and this is the one that I was saying you might know this person. I highly recommend that if you are an Instagram person, you follow a gentleman by the name of Ruben Ravasa. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Ruben underscore Ravasa is a national treasure in two countries. He is a treasure. He is a Cuban treasure and an American treasure. He was an actor in Amparo. Again, connection to the podcast, although we never had Ruben on. And Ruben Ravasa is hilarious. Uh, no matter <laughs> yes. what language you speak, you should be following Ruben Ravasa. He did a complete nonsense instructional on making coffee. It makes no sense. Your coffee will be gross if you follow these instructions, but it was hilarious. Uh, so that's Ruben, like R-U-B-E-N underscore Ravasa, R-A-B-A-S-A, Ruben Ravasa on Instagram. That's a person that you want in your life, even if only on your phone. Talk, what, talking about coffee. Um, We're going to be here another hour. I, well, I just, <laughs> talking about coffee. You know... Miami has a huge coffee culture. Mm-hmm. The mentanita culture here is like a thing that it's a thing. It's just a, it's a way of life. You yep. go there for a reason, and is that something that's the same way in Cuba or no? But right now there is no coffee, and uh, I don't want to sound such a downer. <laughs> no, it's, it's totally fine because I I think it's important for people to know that. Yeah. Yes, and. Yes, because it's like a dichotomy, because at the end of the day, we're talking just about normal sins that for a Cuban in Cuba listener could sound even frivolous. Right. Uh, But answer your question, uh, my grandma, that is 92 years old, drink a cup of coffee just before going to sleep. Oh, yeah, me too. And at 6 a.m. in the morning, my mother wakes up to go to work, makes make coffee, give her a cup of coffee, she drink it, and return to sleep till 10 a.m. She's 92. So, yes, we are all intoxicated. Like. <laughs> With coffee. <laughs> I have a... 
speaking, there, I, I have a, a, a story here. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that I think puts the downer in a light sort of way. Perfect. So my second time in Cuba, I was with two other guys, and we were doing all sorts of subversive things. Mm-hmm. Uh, Leave it open, I'll lock it. And yeah. we, uh, we had dinner at a paladar in Miramar. No, I'm good. And what? Actually, you can take it. Uh, it, was an, it was an open air. Yeah. Those empty glasses oh, yeah, sure. Thank you, man. Uh, it was, I remember that it was an open air thing. Um, in any case, uh, we were in this panadar and it was, I mean, uh, the, the waiter who was dealing with us, it, it was service on the level of like the best restaurants here. This oh. guy was like, this guy knew what he was doing. Um, and so he could tell from the way overhearing us talk and probably, you know, I, I have the look of a person who's not on a Cuban diet. Um, and and so he knew more or less where we were from. And so he says, you know, would you like coffee? All this in Spanish, of course. And so he says, yeah, yeah, we'll have coffee. And he says, okay, well, we have butero, la llave, and pilon. <laughs> and we said, oh, how strange. They have a menu of different brands from the U.S. Like you, you would think there would just be. So we huddle up and we, uh, you know, <coughs> we decide, we settle on, I think, la llave or whatever. And we say, oh, la llave. And he had been waiting. You could tell that he had been waiting the whole meal to do this to us. He goes, well, it was a different word in Spanish. But he says, you idiots, this is Cuba. You're going to drink the same crap that we, <laughs> that we drink. <laughs> ¿Qué dijo así? Así me dijo. No, we'll, we'll cut this part off. He goes, come on. Ah. <laughs> Oh, I like I was like, oh, extra tip for you. <laughs> I like that. Uh, so anyway, I think that illustrates in some way what you're talking about, you know? Um, all right. You have recommendations? I just think I, I find oh. it yeah. fascinating, the things that we... Talking about the disparity between, I think, age groups of Cuban-Americans, Cubans, like the way that my grandparents talk about Cuba and the way that I have connected to that thought process and the way that it's affected my life isn't like that for everybody. I think that's why Nick and I became quick friends because we, you know, we're talkers by nature, but we spoke about this at length and we talked about the emotions and the feelings and the thoughts and the, where do we go? Are we a forgotten tribe? Are we, there's so many things that we've talked about, but there's, a large majority of the people that are in my age group that take so many things for granted. And it for us, it's simple. You know, we go, and I do it every day. I'll find a point in the day. I'll go somewhere. I'll get a cotadito. I'll get a croqueta or a pastelito, and I'll do the whole thing. And so, And I do that because I can. I love it, obviously. I love those things. But I do it because for me, it connects me to something that I feel like my grandparents taught me. That it's part of our culture. It's part of who we are. And it's something that I will teach my kids one day. But there's such a large majority of people that take that for granted. Because they think that's just it's just everywhere. It's just available at all times. So I think what you said was perfect. For the people that listen to this that maybe have a false sense of uh, how things have changed, uh, that they really haven't changed, and that we shouldn't, 
not only should we not take for granted the things that we're capable of doing, but the knowledge that we have at our fingertips by uh, the people that allowed us the opportunity to be here, which is the older generation. So that's my recommendation for all you. That's your recommendation? Ungra- I'll take it. Ungrateful. <laughs> yeah, I'll stop. You have any other recommendations? Besides? I don't. We just did this yesterday. I know. I had I know, bad I recommendations know. yesterday. I actually had a good recommendation yesterday, but I I don't have another one. We just... How about this? Recommend a cookbook. Um, any cookbook. Okay. Um, any cookbook. Because we've been talking about this a bit, so I'm sure it's been on your mind. Obviously. I You know, in the world of cookbooks, I, I always go to like a few, and I've had a hard time finding that uh, that creative part of my life as in the last like two months only because you know creativity is not something that you could just turn on and off it's something that just comes to you naturally and it's just it's either given to you or not and uh, you know the Joe Beef books that we've talked about at length both of them um, what is it the uh, surviving the apocalypse mm-hmm. and uh, the art of living mm-hmm and the On Vegetables book by uh, Jeremy Fox also, you know, that one is always in my book bag. Always. On Vegetables is always in my book bag at all times. Just so. in case you come across some vegetables and... No, just because... the you his, remember pastelitos. Yeah. He's, uh, his, uh, his thing is... Because um, he's from the West Coast, they do... Their thing is avocado toast. So it's like... <laughs> it's interesting. That book is... Uh, they're geography and the kind of vegetables that they have is very different than what we have here but the approach sure is what's i find something that is inspiring so those are my cookbook recommendations any recommendations and then after this we'll do shameless plugs where people can find you and your (laughs) projects but recommendations that are not related to you you should you should tell me that before. I know, I know. <laughs> I know. See, he, this well, we always, we always spring it on people. Another failure by the production. Dad, two opportunities. Now I have to think. That's okay. And we can cut if you have to think about yeah, it a little bit, but that's okay. No, but I think that this one is both um, very interesting and also um, useful, which is the book of my father, which name is um, La Noche No Será Eterna. Uh, it's, it's in Spanish for now, but soon it's going to be also in English. You can find it in Amazon. And if you want to actually get closer to the Cuban reality and to the Cuban history, the recent history, I, I really recommend it. It's, it's a book that he ended a few, a few weeks before being killed. He never saw it published. Uh, we did it after, obviously. Mm-hmm. But I found it very... I found the information there and the approach very current and uh, very useful. Not just for the Cuban people, not just for our Cuban nation, but by, but for anyone that wants to have a clear, close uh, taste of what the Cuban people have been living and which which is the perspective the the dreams of mm-hmm. the of the given society right now so la noche no será eterna correct 
a, and then we'll start with you. This is where we do shameless plugs. All, yeah. Tell everyone where to find you and your things and your projects and your websites and all of that. Well, you could go to cubadeciden.com or .org, and, which is Cuba Decide without the S, cubadecide.org or .com. And you can find us also in social media, of course, in everywhere we are Cuba Deciden. And also you can find me by just Rosa Maria Paya in all, all the social medias and for website, cubadeciden.org. And also cubaincrisis.org, which is cubaincrisis.org, to have some insight about what is going on in the island and also how to support, for instance, initiative as Solidaridad Entre Hermanos, which translates Solidarity Among Brothers. Excellent. Um, shameless plugs, Mike? All the same ones as usual. Ariette, Miami. Ariette, Miami. Pig Inc. Nave, Miami. Pig Inc. Chug's Diner, mm -hmm. which uh, we will be giving people updates on our renovations as they happen, which they start November 3rd. Uh, Nave Miami, stay tuned for reopening details. Um, area at Miami, stay tuned for all of our Thanksgiving deals. And when I mean deals, I don't mean like discounts. <laughs> I mean, like... Give me all your money deals. <laughs> that's putting it the wrong way. But it's uh, th Ariet's Thanksgiving to go and Ariet's yep. family-style menu for Thanksgiving Day. And all the other great things. We'll be releasing the uh, November tasting for um, right after the two tastings next week. Yeah. Uh, so I will end with our shameless plugs. You can find Pang Pong Podcast on all of the social media things. It's Pang Kong Podcast, like a podcast sandwich, on all of the social media things. The also, podcast the podcast sandwich, datemag.com slash Pang Kong Podcast. If you want to support the things that we're doing here, Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com slash datemag. And with that, uh, I want to note, um, thank you so much to Rosa Maria Paya yeah. for joining us I on this thank thing. Thank you enough for... Um, joining our little podcast this has been uh i think illuminating in a way that very few of our other episodes have been and also because this might be the first time maybe that we've had someone on the podcast who uh not only is english a second language but you've been speaking english for less time than other guests and i i know that that can be uncomfortable i want to let you know You speak better English than a lot of our guests. Yeah. Who don't so speak many. any other language. Yeah. So for better than Nick and I, too. Oh, I mean, yeah. Without a doubt. Yeah. Yeah, now you're generous. Okay. <laughs> I would name names, but I'm not going to name names of who speaks worse no, English. No, I mean, all of our former guests. <laughs> yeah, all, every single one. Uh, so thank you for that. And uh, uh, I want to also uh, pat myself on the back a little bit <laughs> because you can only. Wow. Mike, Mike knows. How hard it was for me to go two hours and ten minutes hearing a conversation about Cuba and not talking more than I did. <laughs> it was very difficult. I want to congratulate myself Thanks. for the restraint that I, I exercised on this podcast. I'm very proud of myself. And with that, thank you for joining us, Rosa Maria, and also all of you listening. That's it. Goodbye. <laughs>
That's true. That's probably the truest statement that you've ever Bueno, lo primero es saludar a la gente que está de Cuba en, en Estados Unidos, en Miami o donde quiera que estén. Y si son de Ciego, pues son de mi provincia, mucho mejor. Así que un abrazo bien fuerte y que sepan que aquí en Cuba les queremos y no creemos en, en las mentiras que nos cuentan de ustedes. Así que ánimo y los jóvenes de Cuba les mandan un saludo y la iglesia. <risa> 